I uh, am pulling double, triple duty today. And that's okay um, because it's fun. I think uh, no matter what you do, if it's fun for you, you don't get tired of it. And so I, I, love, I love being able to play music um, that God has given me talent to do, and I love being able to preach. And so I want to ask you something. Do you remember when you were a child and mom would bust out like the crayons and the markers and the coloring books? <laughs> I, I do too. But I can't think of too many pastimes less appetizing to <laughs> kid Phil or adult Phil. And, and I've heard this recently that like adult coloring books are a thing. Maybe, so maybe you still bust out the coloring books, not for your kids, but for yourselves. And that's fine. Like, I'm not trying to judge you. I really don't. I'm just telling you that I don't like coloring very much. And when I was a kid, I would much rather spend my time like playing basketball or football or cops versus robbers, yeah, cowboys versus Indians, or the much more politically correct, yet infinitely more vague, good guys versus bad guys, yeah. Um, well, my, I think my dislike from coloring stems from the fact that I just, maybe I just didn't like sitting still. Mom and dad are here. They can answer that for you better than I can. I had to sit still the color. I would much rather be doing active things. But I think it's also there, um, embedded from my subconscious. And there's this traumatic experience that dramatically just took root in my subconscious from when I was a child about coloring. And so when I was reached the age to attend kindergarten, I had to show up at school. I'm not going to say the school. They're probably all the same with this anyway. And I had to perform several tasks like tying my shoes and coloring a page out of a coloring book. And my performance in these academic Olympics, if you will, academic, right? My performance in these academic Olympics, the, the school used that to basically make a recommendation to the parents and say, hey, if you do well enough and your kid does well enough in these things, he, is, he or she is smart enough or developed enough or ready enough for kindergarten. And it was also, they don't tell you this, but it's also a parenting Olympics too. Because good parents have good kids that do really well in all of these things. And bad parents have kids that were actually forced to have fun when they were growing up. And so I guess you could probably figure out which group I fell into. Um, I was, I think I was able to tie my shoes well enough, um, which is kind of sad to think about. Uh, but I didn't do so hot in the coloring to the point where my mom was actually discouraged from enrolling me into kindergarten because I had trouble staying inside the lines. I would go outside the lines. I would go across them. I just, you know, it, I'm sure my coloring was terrible because I didn't do it very much. But don't worry, I, I eventually figured out how to do that, and I did make it through kindergarten and all of the other grades after that. <laughs> um, I, I did develop into a five-star firstborn, and so I am awesome at staying inside the lines now, okay? I don't like coloring any more than I did back then, but if I did, I would get a gold medal at staying inside the lines. It may not be pretty, but I could stay inside the lines. And I think that, <laughs> oh, man, 
I was a great kid. Staying inside the lines is really, I think it's a great thing. I'm very comfortable doing it. A lot of us are comfortable doing it. It's a great thing to do most of the time, I would say. But it becomes problematic when we try to define people with those lines. Because we're, we're complicated people. We don't fit very neatly. If we're honest with ourselves, we don't fit very neatly between the lines that we draw for ourselves and others. We draw these lines around ourselves and others, and we take sides, and we set up these defining boundaries. And I think this is just me. Um, this is not in the Bible. This is just me wrestling with this for two months. I think we do it because we feel like if we can figure out a way to jam a person or a group of people on one side of a line or the other, then we will be able to actually understand them. If we come up with a label that we understand and put it on that person, then we understand that person. And it, it doesn't work that way because that label, that line, simplifies everything. And simplification sometimes leads to better understanding, but not always. And in this case, I think it completely breaks down. I think it's dangerous to define someone else's handiwork on your terms. I think it's really dangerous to define someone else's handiwork on your terms because if you define something in your image that God has created in his image, you are always going to land somewhere between incomplete and flat out wrong. And it's not because, listen to me, it's not because you have bad intentions. Some people have bad intentions when they label people, but I'm not saying you do. It may not be because you have bad intentions. It's because you don't have the whole picture. Okay, God created everyone in his image, and as the creator, he knows everything about each and every one of us. And so for us to then label somebody in a certain way, you're just not, you don't have the whole picture because you didn't create that person. God did. So this presents a problem. Now, just to make you feel a little bit better, humans have always done this. We're just more aware of it now because we have all access to all of it. And it's, it's constantly flooding our consciousness, the media, social media, TV, everywhere. Our society is built this way, but our society has always been this way. Every culture is like this. But the good news is that Jesus knew we would do that. And so when we look at his life and how he engaged with people, we see that he often went outside the lines. He crossed the lines. He knew how to engage with people that had different lifestyles than him and different beliefs than him, all without compromising his character or watering down his message in any way. And we need to learn how to do that as well. Because we can't just hole up inside our homes and churches, right? We're called to take the gospel to everyone. But we also can't come out of our homes and churches, Bibles blazing, right? Because <laughs> we need to engage the public with humility and kindness the way Jesus did. 
So as we kick off this new series, Jesus Outside the Lines, I want to do my best to prepare you for what you are going to hear and what you are not going to hear over the next several weeks. And at a high level today, I want to look at how to go outside the lines inside the church, the global church, and outside the church. And I want to start with inside the church because I think if we get this right, if you and, if you and I, if we start getting this moving in the right direction, that our engagement outside the church will follow suit. Okay, so we got to start with us, have a little family talk first, okay? So if you didn't, if it, maybe you've only been in church for like a day. If you've been in church for more than a day, you would know that there's lines drawn everywhere. <laughs> I'll name a few for you. Uh, how about Catholic versus Protestant? Thousands of years of that. Free will versus predestination, pro-local church versus anti-local church. That's actually a huge deal right now, believe it or not. Newsflash, we're pro-local church. Okay. Or what about contemporary worship versus traditional worship? I won't let the cat out of the bag on that one. You decide. Lights versus no lights. Subwoofers versus... Wrong. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's, it's not in the Bible. It's just me. Okay. All right. <laughs> and th- these lines are everywhere, but they're never as black and white as we want them to be. But most of us are ultimately too lazy to sit down and connect with somebody, even attempt to connect with someone outside the lines of our own denomination or the style, the way that we prefer to do church, simply in an effort to understand them. I'm not saying, I'm not asking you to meet with somebody that's Catholic and say, oh, yeah, Catholic, Catholicism's great. I'm going to be Catholic now. Just to understand them. And here's why. We've got to start re-leveling the playing field around here. We've got to start understanding that, by and large, most Christians worship the same Jesus, and are on the same mission to grow his kingdom. That's why it's too important to engage with people that are different from you inside the church beyond too lazy as well. Because I think pulling up inside our four doctrinal, procedural, strategic, stylistic walls is not at all what Jesus had in mind for the church. And he also didn't call us to take our way of doing church and try to impose it on other people. That's church warfare. That wouldn't work. There's a a middle way. There's a middle way between the two. And I think that there are wonderful examples that we see in Paul's letters and in the life of Jesus. So let's look at some of Paul's letters first. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 3. It says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 2 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're keeping score, that's literally the same verse. Titus 1, 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And I could actually read the beginning of all of Paul's letters, and you would probably find 
two important words. He always started with a greeting, and his greeting always contained two very important words, grace and peace. And he didn't put them there because grace is awesome and peace is awesome. He had a very specific reason for doing that. So if we go back to, say, Corinthians, grace to you, let's stop there. That phrase, grace to you, at the time was the most common Greek greeting. So you would see a friend on the street, and you would say, oh, grace to you, instead of hi, and you would say it in Greek, not English. And then if we go back to the verse, it says peace. If we say peace to you, that was the most common Jewish greeting. Paul chose these words on purpose because he wanted to make sure that whoever was reading those letters knew that he was deliberately addressing Jews and Greeks. And this was a radical approach at the time because there was a huge, a deep ethnic and cultural divide or a line drawn between the Jews and the Greeks. They hated each other. But wouldn't you know it, God is way bigger than that. God's way bigger than that. And the the message of Jesus was way bigger than that, transcended it. And so even though the church at the time was like three years old, there was already Jewish and Greek Christians in basically every church that Paul ministered to and was writing to. There's power in the Word of God. And so Paul knew about this cultural and ethnic divide. He knew that the churches he was ministering to were filled with Greek and Jewish Christians, and he wanted to make sure that even something as subtle as the greeting, right at the beginning, he wanted to make sure that that playing field was level, and he wanted to make sure that everyone knew, hey, guys, I have a message from God. I have from from God. I have something for you to encourage you, and it's from God, God our Father, This message is from God, and since it's from God and you are all his children, it's for everyone, Jewish, Greek, Roman, doesn't matter. That's going outside the lines. We also see a powerful picture of this in John 17, the high priestly prayer. And I want to pick it up in verse 20, John 17, verse 20. Jesus says, he's praying to God the Father. He says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's you and me. He was praying for you and me and everyone else in history that would ever come to believe in him. How many people do you pray for? I pray, verse 21, I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. Verse 21, he's saying, he's praying that the church, the big C church, the global church, would be united under God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. There it is, guys and girls. There's other places we can go to, but that right there is an explicit command for us to make our faith visible 
to the world and to actually, to actively live it out so that the world will believe you sent me. Verse 22, I have given them the glory you gave me. That's awesome. So they may be one as we are one. There it is again, unity in the church. Verse 23, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. You guys, that right there, I don't know, I'm, I, maybe I'm wrong here. I don't know how else to interpret that last verse except to say this. People will be saved as a result of witnessing and experiencing unity. John 17, unity within the local church and within the Big C Church. Period. So we got to be on our game. It cannot be about us. It can't be about our church kingdom. It cannot be about anything else except Jesus. Jesus prayed specifically for unity in our church and the Big C Church, even with the knowledge that there was going to come a slew of denominations and styles and traditions. And by the way, the early church was like this. You can read Paul's letters and you can see that there were already different styles, different ways of doing things. You maybe couldn't call them denominations just yet, but we've basically always had them. And so I don't know that denominations are a bad thing. But Jesus knew all of that, and he prayed for it anyway because he knew that people would be saved as a result. So I said it once before in a message, and I will say it again. One of our chief goals here at Church 214 is that we would see unity rise up among the people of God in this city regardless of what church they go to, period. And we believe, we believe that we are called to do this because we believe that every believer is called to this mission based on John 17. And so just to be perfectly clear, here, here is how this will work. There will be times at this church where we do things that will directly lead to the growth of this church. And there will be other times when we do things that will directly lead to the growth of other churches. And here's the key. We are going to celebrate both results with equal joy. We're going to celebrate both results with equal joy because the mission we're called to here is to advance the kingdom of God. To create a place where people can meet Jesus. And so if people are meeting Jesus in this building or some other building, based on our actions, the kingdom of God's growing and we celebrate. That's a reason to celebrate. We celebrate both results with equal joy. And so I'm not saying that we need to do away with denominations because if we did that, we'd have to still choose one and there's no way we'd all be able to choose one. I'm also not saying that we try to do a little bit of everything so that every person that could possibly come through our doors feels included based on our programming. 
that's impossible. We can't please everyone. But what I am saying is that our perspective needs to shift. Our priorities need to be adjusted. This isn't in the Bible either, but I just, I believe this with all my heart. I just think this is true. Guys, our methods will never be as inclusive as our people simply walking across the room to shake someone's hand and talk to them and love them. Okay, we could have the most inclusive music, the most inclusive preaching, the most inclusive building. We've got it, by the way. The most inclusive lights, the most inclusive hospitality team, the most inclusive kids, church, the most inclusive website, the most inclusive podcast, the most inclusive branding, the most inclusive social media pages. None of that will ever be anywhere near as inclusive as our people simply walking across the room to shake someone's hand, say hi to them, and love them, regardless of where they came from, regardless of where they're going. Bill Hybels says that armed with enough humility, leaders can learn from anyone. And I, and I believe this is true for everyone, not just leaders. And so armed with enough humility, anyone can learn from anyone. And so, like, once again, we're not going to try to do church like every denomination, church network, association, church leader, author tells us to. But we are going to do our best to learn from everyone that we encounter. Because if we're learning, we can get better. And if we get better, we can more effectively carry out the specific mission that God has called us to here at Church 214. So that's inside the church, about as fast as I could possibly do it. But what about outside the church? Because we're called to take the gospel to everyone. We have to go outside the church. Our mission compels us to go outside the church, which is great, except for the fact that historically the church has not always engaged with the public or society in productive ways, to put it very lightly. Jesus was a master at this. One, because he was Jesus. And two, because he spent tons of time with people that did not believe in him. Tons of time with people that were different from him. And even though he didn't need to, he was doing his homework. And he was showing his disciples how to do it showing us how to do it. Again, that kind of gets back to not holding ourselves up inside our four walls. We got to get out. And in case you have, were just born or are living under a rock currently, our society is set up with lines drawn everywhere, just like the church. The church isn't any better than the world. And at no time is it more apparent than election, election season. It's one of the reasons why we chose this series for right now. We've got Democrats versus Republicans versus Independents versus Libertarians versus the Green Party and the Tea Party and the every other party. 
pro-life versus pro-choice. Black lives matter, white lives matter, all lives matter, purple lives matter. And I'm not trying to make light of any of that, by the way. Gay marriage, transgender rights, political correctness versus political incorrectness. These waters are very tough to navigate as it is, let alone do it the way that Jesus did. And again, this is just me wrestling with this, so I don't know if I'm right. I'll let you decide. It's tough because I think that more often than not, we are concerned, more concerned about being right, more concerned about validating how offended we are than loving someone. So I'm not going to address any specific issues that I just mentioned in a ton of detail because I want to leave that for, for uh, the preachers to come. But I do want to, I'm not, I'm not dodging anything, guys. I'm going to say some pretty tough stuff coming up. Just, just wait. I'm going to offend some people. I know it. I know it. <laughs> but I want to set up those discussions as best I can at the time I have left. So really quick, I'm not going to, I can't say this for sure, because I haven't talked to all the preachers, but you're probably not going to hear from us about our political views. I, I would just be surprised if we felt the need to tell you what our political views were. Our church, as a church, as an organization, does not endorse anyone, will never endorse anyone, don't need to, it's not the point. Heather said it in the beginning, we serve Jesus. Not saying don't vote. I think you should. Not saying don't have an opinion. But your perspective needs to be correct. We're not going to tell you which side to pick on these issues. We're not going to tell you who to vote for. We're going to do our best to show you what the Bible has to say about these issues. And we're going to do our best to teach you how to engage with society on these issues. And here's a very practical key I th- uh, for getting the most out of this series. Really, any series for that matter at Church 214, but especially this one. And it starts with this verse. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. I love that it starts with worship. There's a lot of passages in the Bible that start with worship. Verse 16, but do this in a gentle and respectful way. That's the tough part, isn't it? Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, They will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Stephen Furtick recently said that offense is an event. Offended is a decision. Offense is an event. Offended is a decision. And so you have two choices. You can learn and grow or you can get mad and be offended when your current views get challenged or stretched in any way. Getting offended does nothing, by the way. 
And as I've wrestled with this over two months, I, I've become increasingly convicted about when I get offended. I think we get offended. Again, correct me if I'm wrong. We've, I think we find it very easy to relate to people and give grace to people that struggle with the same things that we struggle with. And I don't think that's a bad thing because most of the time, Satan likes to make us believe the lie that we are the only person in the universe that struggles with X, Y, or Z. And so when we find someone else that struggles with the same thing, we have this huge sigh of relief. And a lot of times we latch on to them as a, as a friend, as a companion, as a support, which is a great thing. I'm, keep doing that. But when we run into someone that struggles with something that we have never struggled with and might never struggle with, for some reason our default response tends to be little to no grace. Because we just have a hard time understanding well, why they would struggle with that. Why don't you just stop it? <laughs> just stop it. So, as an example, as a straight person, it's really hard for me, it's probably hard for you too, to understand how could someone possibly struggle with homosexuality. That doesn't make any sense. And we're beside ourselves. Like we can't think straight. When we look at the media and we see the parades, the movies, the documentaries, and how passionate they are. They're fighting for more legal protection. They're fighting for new laws to be passed so that they can have similar rights to heterosexual people in this country. And we get offended. And I think that's really sad. I think the only reason we get offended is because we haven't spent a second in their shoes. You can try as hard as you want to. You will never know what it feels like to be in that person's shoes. And so we're just like, well, they're the ones bringing it up. Why don't they just stop it? Just stop. Okay, well, you struggle with your budget. You live in a house you can't afford. I'm in the midst, we are in the midst of selling our house because I lost my job and we can't afford it anymore. So guess what? We're selling it and buying a cheaper one. It's not that hard. Just stop it. We drive used cars that we bought with cash years ago. Don't have a car payment. Cheap insurance. You are driving a car that you can't afford. Just stop it. Just sell it. Buy a cheap one. You go shopping every weekend. You have way too much clothes. Just stop it. Just stop it. Oh, but Phil, that's not the same thing. Homosexuality is different. I mean, you know, sanctity of marriage and, and you know, men, like, where are the men in this country? And, and they're, you know, they're the ones, I don't, you know. I get it. Here's the deal. Bad stewardship of your finances and homosexuality are the same to God. You don't think we have economic problems in this country because we're spending money we don't have? 
So you can tell me, you can come to me and say homosexuality is the doom of the United States. Guess what? We can get rid of all of them tomorrow. And we'd still be in an economic mess because no one can seem to figure out how to spend money wisely. Let's think about it from this perspective. I haven't spoken to a ton of homosexual people in my life, but I want to try to think about it from their perspective. Do we honestly think that they enjoy the media, controversy, fighting, protests, all that stuff? Do we honestly think they enjoy the consequences of their decisions? Oh, just stop it. Okay, that you stop spending money you don't have. Okay? Do we honestly think that they enjoy the persecution and the oppression that they've had to endure for decades and decades and decades, much of it sadly coming from the church of all places. Transgender people, do you really think they want to talk about bathrooms right now? Seriously. And I'm not saying everybody, I'm sure there's some people in those communities that have agendas and but we act like they're doing it to deliberately offend us. And newsflash, that's not the reason. They could care less what you think. They're doing it because for right or wrong, good or evil, they're doing it because they're fed up, they're tired. They feel that their rights have been infringed long enough and they're fighting back. Right or wrong, okay? That's what they feel, and you are not in a position to tell them how they feel. The world doesn't work that way. You know, or think about it from this perspective. If something you valued way long enough, you would react the exact same way. Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, what if Congress tomorrow decides to take all your guns away? think you'd react the same way. Just as much media coverage, just as many protests, just as much violence. Oh, it's not the same. Yeah, it's the same. It's exactly the same. I've got all kinds of friends that own guns. Okay. Doesn't have to be guns, could be anything. Something you values and value enough is taken away from you long enough, right or wrong, good or evil, productive or not, you are going to react the same way. And the media, because it's looking for a story, is going to do the same cycle over and over and over again. So I think we just need to try to level, again, level the playing field as much as we can here, folks. A good friend of mine, Doug Rumbold, preached a great sermon recently. He's, he was my youth pastor in high school, a great leader a good friend, a, life, a lifetime mentor for me. And he said something so simple and powerful in his message, I just had to steal it, and so that's why I'm quoting him. He said that people don't change when they encounter legislation. They change when they encounter Jesus, period, end of story. So we can get offended and we can argue and we can vote and we can do all these things, and we can get all upset about the new legislation, about more gun control and gay marriage and all this other stuff. 
we can try to vote Aaron Schock into the presidency. Look how that turned out. Okay, you're never going to find a savior on Capitol Hill. Find the greatest Christian you've ever met, stick him in the White House, not a whole lot's going to change. And they might and they might not ever fail or fall from grace. But we've got a Supreme Court and we've got Congress and if those people aren't filled up with Christ followers too, it's not not a whole lot's going to change, guys. So, does it mean we give up? No. We just got to adjust our perspective, adjust our approach. And lest any of you are still unsure about any of this, let me just start with, uh, let me just approach this biblically from 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Amen? Yes? We, we agree? Yeah, that's great. Yes. All right. All the bad people. Don't go to heaven. Verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, guys, I'm not asking you to be okay with any of this that's going on. I'm not asking you to be okay with it. I'm not asking you to compromise your beliefs. I'm not asking you to water down the message in any way so that it's easier to swallow. I'm not even asking you to apologize your beliefs for your beliefs in the process of sharing this message of faith and hope and love and redemption and healing. I'm not asking you to apologize at all. I don't think you should. What I'm asking you to do is twofold. Number one, remember that phrase, and such were some of you. Remember that you are not a moral champion saved by grace. You're a sinner, just like all of them, but saved by grace. And number two, do what Jesus commanded you to do, to love them. I think it is possible, you guys, it is possible to love someone on the other side of any of those lines without compromising anything. Jesus spent most of his life doing it, and he called us to do the same. And so as we leave, I have one challenge for you, and it's this question. How will you reach across the line? I don't think we have any room to debate the merits of reaching across the line or not. I think that's pretty clear what we have to do. The question is, how will you reach across the line? And even with, see, people don't change when they encounter legislation. They change when they encounter Jesus. And that encounter with Jesus will almost always start with an encounter 
with you? Are you going to be a part of the problem or a part of the solution? How will you reach across the line? And even with all this talk about going outside the lines or crossing the lines so far, and even with how much more you're going to hear that going forward, there's one line that Jesus will never compromise, and it's John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But we, have, we can't just stop there. We have to look at his life, and we'll see that he didn't just draw that line in the sand. That's a very clear line, right? He didn't just draw that line in the sand and then step back, fold his arms, and do nothing. He drew that line in the sand, and then he stepped across, and he reached out. And he said, hey, are you hungry? Come with me. I have this bread, and if you eat it, You'll never go hungry again. Are you thirsty? I have this water. Please drink. You'll never be thirsty again. Are you tired? Come with me. All who are weary and I will give you rest. It's free. Just, just come with me, please. I love you. That's how Jesus reached across the How will you reach across the line? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are nothing without you. We were dead in our sins. We were those revilers, those drunkards, those troublemakers. But you didn't leave us there. You came to us. You drew us to yourself. You reached out your hand and lifted us up out of the depths. And you washed us and sanctified us and saved us from our sins so that we could have a relationship with you not just a free ticket to heaven where we will gladly spend eternity with you, but access to the Holy Spirit in our hearts so that we can experience abundant life here and now. Not an easy life, but a good life, a great life. If we listen to that Spirit and do what you have us to do. And so, God, break our hearts for those people that we just can't understand, those people that are different from us. They're just different, but they're still your child, your children, and they need you. And they need us to love them. And may that start here in this room with these people. Loving each other and taking that love 
to the world. So that the world would know that you sent your son and that they would believe. In Jesus' name, amen.